We begin today with a fill-in-the-blank exercise. You ready? I'm going to go ahead and say this. Don't answer out loud. <laughs> there have been times where I've been preaching and kind of throw in a fill-in-the-blank thing and somebody will shout out their answer and then wish they hadn't. So don't answer out loud. But here it is. Ready? Just fill in the blank in your head. Here's the sentence, and you just think, what's, what's coming? I live for this. Fill in the blank. I live for... I'm glad nobody said it out loud. <laughs> I was curious how different people might answer this question, so I went to our resident expert um, to see how people answer the question, what do you live for? Um, you know the resident expert, right? Google. Google. <laughs> so you may want to try this out. Just Google, I live for this, and you'll be surprised maybe at what shows up. Did you know there is a gym in Denver, Colorado called Live For This Fitness? Right? So maybe some people live to exercise. I'm not one of those people. I try to do it from time to time, but it's definitely not something I live for. Um, some of you may remember the George Harrison song, I Live For You. That popped up. I found out there's some debate about that song. Some people think it's kind of a spiritual devotion thing. Some people think it's a love song. That one's up to you. Um, some people are workaholics. They live for their career, live for the job, put in the you know, extra overtime hours every week. I'd forgotten about one that popped up on the Google search. Several years ago, there was a Major League Baseball campaign. Some of you baseball fans remember this one? Where they had fans uh, recording themselves saying, I live for this, and they'd have on their, the gear from their favorite team. And speaking of sports, we know what season it is now, right? In the South especially, it's college football season, and we all know somebody who lives for uh, the Tigers or the Tide or whoever, um, whoever their team might be. What do we live for? The question is really about identity, isn't it? How do I think of myself? What's, my, what's at the heart of my identity? What drives me day in and day out? What am I passionate about? What do I give everything for? What defines my day-to-day -day living? But when we start talking about identity and the different kinds of things we live for, then we have to ask, what happens when those things go south? If I live to work, what happens when my job gets cut? If I live for my career? If I live for a relationship? Like maybe that George Harrison song. What happens when that relationship comes to an end? Or finds itself in rocky territory? When we get to the end of our lives and people remember us, do we really want the first thing they say was, he was at the gym five days a week. <laughs> By all means, pursue health, exercise. But is that really the thing I live for? And everybody knows that if you live for a sports team, eventually they'll let you down. They may have a dynasty that runs for a decade, but eventually. Seasons will turn, and they'll let you down. What makes life worth living? And what makes life worth living when things don't go well? Fortunately for us, 
We're not the first people to ask that question. The Apostle Paul raises the question in his letter to the Philippians and addresses what a life worth living looks like. Whether times are good or, as we'll find out, whether times are very painful like they were for Paul and the Philippians. In fact, Paul is really interested in what makes life worth living in difficult times, as we'll see. After all, we were reminded this morning that he was writing from prison. And we'll discover that the Philippians are struggling against some antagonism. They're being persecuted. They're suffering, Paul says, in a way much like he is suffering. And so here's Paul in prison, and here's the Philippians who are suffering, and they could lose their joy, they could lose their contentment. But Paul knows the secret to what makes life worth living, and he wants to share that with the Philippians. He wants to share it with us. For Paul, the bottom line is that the gospel makes life worth living, even, maybe especially, when living life is hard. The gospel makes life worth living, even when living life is hard. That's the bottom line for this passage. Philippians 1, 27 uh, is the main place where that shows up. So grab your Bibles. Let's take a look at it together. Paul writes, only, there's one Greek word, it gets translated only. Some translations put it differently. No matter what happens, in any circumstances, this is the main thing. Here's the one thing to be focused on. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's the main imperative. It's the first command. Up until this point, Paul has had a lot of uh, statements of fact, declarative statements. Here's the first command in the whole letter, the first imperative, the first instruction. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. The gospel-worthy life is the thing we're after. No matter what happens, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, if we're going to understand what he's doing here, we need to understand a few things about the city of Philippi which we've already heard a little bit about this morning, uh, but we need to understand kind of what's going on there. You need to know in the city of Philippi, uh, the citizens took their Roman Empire identity very seriously. You might say they were very, very, uh, very much Roman patriots. Uh, the city had a long history. It was founded uh, by Philip of Macedon. If you care much about people like that, uh, Philip of Macedon. And he uh, founded the city about 356 years before Jesus was born. Different things happened, uh, and the city kind of had some ups and downs. And then 42 years before Jesus was born, Philippi was the site of a great battle, a very famous battle between the folks who killed Julius Caesar and Caesar's adopted son, Octavian. Octavian wins. He becomes the new emperor, names himself Augustus, and that's the famous emperor we hear about in the Gospels, Caesar Augustus. And Augustus refounds the city as a colony of the Roman Empire because it's important, because the major victory that puts him in place as emperor happens in that spot. And a lot of the soldiers who fought in that battle 
Uh, he gave them some land grants so they could settle there. And so there's this real sense right, of pride in their Roman identity. You actually run into a, a word in the scholarly literature. This may surprise you. They call it Romanitis. <laughs> to get Romanitis, sounds like something my doctor might, uh, <laughs> might write, write a prescription for. But they had this thing called Romanitis. They loved this Roman identity. In fact, in Philippi, you get more inscriptions in Latin than Greek. Everywhere else in the empire, things are written in Greek. Here, they care about this identity. It's like a little Rome right there in Greece. So Paul writes to them, and he uses a word, live your life, that he doesn't use in any other letter in the New Testament. He talks about living worthy of God in, in, in a bunch of places, and in most of those places, uh, the Greek word is the word to walk. Walk in a manner worthy of God. There's this idea of, you know, here's, you're walking with God, you want your life to reflect uh, the kind of life that honors Him, but here, he goes into the world of Roman politics and pulls out a word that focuses not so much on walking, but on civic duty. Civic duty. And he says, when it comes to the gospel, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he takes this word that's attached to doing your duty to the empire, and he kind of moves it to a transcendent level and gives them this command, for all your loyalties to the emperor, you have a higher loyalty to Jesus Christ. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And the rest of this passage, we're going to work our way through it, is fleshing that out. And really the rest of the letter is fleshing that out and applying it to different settings. of What it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. So what does that life look like? What does it look like to live into this heavenly identity, this uh, kingdom of heaven citizenship, right? This civic duty for the citizens of the kingdom of God. For Paul, the first thing it has to do with is unity in the face of perseverance. Unity and perseverance, excuse me, in the face of antagonism. Right? The Philippians are suffering. And Paul wants them to stand together and live courageously against whatever kind of antagonism they may be facing. So if you look at your Bibles, he goes on to say, I want you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Like live into your heavenly citizenship, kingdom of God identity, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are no in way intimidated by your opponents. So there's the first time we hear about some opponents. He doesn't fill in the blanks. We don't know much about these folks. We're not sure why they're opposing the Philippians. We're not sure what their beef is with this early young Christian community. But there is some opposition there. And he goes on. In no way intimidated by your opponents. This is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you have the same struggle that I that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So there's several places in this central text where Paul mentions their opponents, 
their suffering, and he compares it to his own suffering. And remember, he's in prison, isn't he? So things are tough for these folks. It's difficult to know what exactly is going on, to what extent. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe they've stopped worshiping uh, the family idols and started worshiping Jesus alone. Uh, you get that kind of stuff in the letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians. They've turned from idols to worship God, and chances are if you do that sort of thing, uh, there's going to be some kickback. You challenge the status quo, and people aren't going to like that, and so it's going to make things tough, and maybe they don't treat you the way they used to treat you. Whatever's going on, living life is hard for the Philippians. They're struggling. We'll find out later on in the letter that they're also embroiled in some controversy in their community. There's some division, potential faction going on. Uh, a couple of the leaders, Paul names them by name later on in the letter, are creating some dissension in the ranks. And so you can imagine what the situation is like for them. Right Here they are, things were going well, and then all of a sudden they get some outside pressure. And in the middle of that outside pressure, there's a couple of key leaders inside who don't agree on something. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was the color of the carpet. Maybe it was something else. But so there's pressure from the outside and faction, potential faction on the inside. And so you can imagine, you know, when things get tough and, well, did you hear what happened to so-and-so in the market the other day? And what was said? And he got pushed around some. And he's, well, you know, why are people treating, you know, treating us this way? And, you know, well, it's probably that person's fault because they did this other thing. And you can begin to imagine what this is like. Pressure from the outside exacerbates the potential faction on the inside. And if you're not divided, well, Jesus himself said a house divided can't stand, didn't he? So Paul's got an urgent situation, and he calls upon the Philippians to get together, one mind, one spirit, side by side. And he's writing to a community that's a bunch of retired Roman soldiers and their children and grandchildren. And he's drawing on language that would really resonate with them because if you think about a Roman uh, military unit, if you're marching into battle, you got your shield, you got your spear, and the other side's archers start launching arrows, what do you do? Well, all of the soldiers put your shields up and you kind of overlap them a little bit like scales on a snake or something. And uh, if you move in lockstep, well, that massive shield stays in place. <laughs> but if one person's a little slow and trips or moves a little too quick, all of a sudden there's a big hole in the shield and arrows get through and the guy next to him goes down and the guy next to him goes down, all of a sudden that hole gets bigger, all because they weren't marching with one mind. And so Paul takes, again, that language that would resonate with folks who fought for Augustus and their families and says, look, when it comes to the, the battles, the antagonism that you're facing for loving Jesus and following Jesus and being committed to the gospel, you've got to stay together. Don't let this petty argument between these two people Create dissension so that half of you are going that way and half of you are going that way and your shield barrier gets split up because it's going to be easy for your opponents to start taking you down if you're not of one mind. 
Live a life worthy of the gospel, and that means church unity as an essential element of persevering in the face of opposition. Live a life worthy of the gospel. And understand that the gospel is the thing that gives you purpose, Paul says. The gospel defines your life together. The gospel defines you when you go to your place of employment. The gospel defines you when you go home to your family. The gospel defines you when you are at recreation. The gospel defines you in every moment of your life. And if it does... It creates unity. And that unity is essential for standing firm in the face of opposition. So you see, for Paul, if the Philippians had found their identity maybe in their Romanitis and things get tough, well, it'd be very easy to say, you know what, this Jesus thing isn't worth the pain that I'm experiencing. Forget about that. I'm going back to Zeus's temple or Jupiter or Minerva or whoever you're worshiping this week. If it's tough and some other thing gets my energy, whether it's a relationship or a job or a team or whatever, when things get tough, it's so easy to walk away from the difficulty involved in following Jesus. Paul is going to go on in the next bit and talk about how following Jesus requires self-denial, other-oriented love. And so he's prepping for that by teaching the Philippians the gospel is the thing that makes your life worth living. Not your Philippian citizenship, not your Roman citizenship, not the fact that you live in one of Caesar's colonies, not the fact that you've got this great heroic um, reputation in your colony. Those, that's fine, but your identity, the thing that defines your person, the thing that defines your community is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. who loved us, who gave Himself for us, who died so that we can live, whose blood washes away our sins, whose resurrection gives us hope for new life. Paul says that's the message that defines your identity. Live for that and you'll make it when living life is hard. When you live for Jesus and His Gospel when life throws its worst at you, you'll find life continues to be worth living even when it's stunningly difficult. And you may be thinking what the Philippians might have been thinking. Paul, that sounds great, but it's not realistic. <laughs> you know, that's all nice in theory. You get your theology books and books on pastoral theology where you talk about how tough it is, but, you know, you weren't there when they started shoving us around in the market the other day for not going to temple worship. You, weren't, you didn't hear what they've been saying about us at work, Paul. You don't know how hard this is getting. It's a nice idea, but it's not realistic. And Paul has this whole narration 
in verses 12 through 26 of his own life and the different kinds of suffering and adversity he's facing to show that it is realistic to live worthy of the gospel even when life is hard. He begins with uh, the story of his imprisonment in verses 12 through 14. Take a look at it. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, has actually helped to spread the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. So here's Paul. You know, maybe the Philippians are stressing out. Things are going tough for us, but we got Paul, and then word comes, Paul's in prison, and he's waiting for his trial, and he may get the death sentence. And what does that mean for us? And our, our pastors got locked up. Maybe we just need to call it quits and disperse and go back to the things we used to do. And Paul says, no, actually, God is at work providentially because it turns out there's some prison guards that need to hear the good news of Jesus. <laughs> and the word is spreading throughout the whole imperial guard that I'm here because I love the Lord. <laughs> and I've got a chance to preach the gospel to some people who need to hear it. He sees his imprisonment as a mission opportunity, right? Because his life is defined by the gospel. So in this season where, I mean, he could have his pity party, oh, I'm locked up, I can't go preach, can't go out and build up my churches. He could lose his joy, he could lose his contentment. But Paul can live for Jesus when living life is hard because he is defined solely by the gospel. Everything else is subservient to the gospel. Here I am in prison. If my life is defined by the gospel, it means the guards need to hear about Jesus. That's all there is to it. No reason to stress. Is this the road I would have chosen? Probably not. <laughs> Nevertheless, Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. And if this is the place he brings me, then there's gospel work to do. And it works out well for the brothers and sisters, he says. They've been encouraged. right? They could have been discouraged. The apostle is locked up. The gospel appears to be in chains. But instead, they're encouraged. Hey, if Paul can preach to the prison guards, maybe I can talk to my co-workers <laughs> or my neighbors. Maybe I can be faithful, even though it hurts. If Paul can do it, maybe I can too. By the grace of God. And the power of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, they're tempted to think, hey, life worthy of the gospel, that's a great idea, Paul, but this is real life. You don't know what it's like. And Paul says, yes, yes, I do. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like for life to be tough. But if my life is defined by the gospel, then those moments of pain and suffering become opportunities for mission and evangelism and discipleship. The gospel makes life worth living even when living life is hard. Not only is Paul imprisoned, he has rivals. You didn't know preachers had rivals with rivalries with each other, did you? Right? Maybe you did. So Paul is in prison, and apparently there's somebody else who uh, is trying to take the opportunity to advance their own ministry and maybe kind of milk some sheep off Paul's flock or something. Here's what he says. Some, verse 15, some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. All right, so you got some people who are in it for themselves. They're 
They're, they're, they're out there for the numbers. They're out there for the reputation. Maybe they're trying to get a TV gig or something like that. A channel, maybe. <laughs> Their own thing. So everybody knows who the best preacher is. Some proclaim Christ out of envy and rivalry, Paul says, but others proclaim Him out of goodwill. These have been put here for the defense of the gospel, right? That's Paul's camp. He's defending the gospel, proclaims Christ from unselfish motives, right? The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. So you can imagine a scene like, you know, some rival apostle who's out for their own reputation. And in the Roman world, reputation was everything. Public honor was the most important value. And there wasn't, there was a limited supply. So if you got some, it means somebody else lost theirs. So here's Paul and he's in prison, which is a stunningly shameful thing in the ancient world. If you got locked up, there's no honor in that. You, get, you go way down on the honor scale. And so there's some rivals who are saying, hey, Paul, the great apostle, is locked up. Let's take the opportunity to advance ourselves. Preachers never do that kind of stuff, do they? <laughs> you can imagine. And so Paul says they want to take this. He's already locked up, and now there are some other people who are supposed to be on his team but are actually taking the opportunity to increase his suffering, he says. So you can hear the Philippians. Paul, life worthy of the gospel, even in the face of suffering, it's a nice idea, but it's not realistic. And Paul says, yes, it is. Your life is defined by the gospel. It doesn't matter if people try to increase your suffering as long, he says, as Christ is proclaimed. Verse 18, what does it matter? Right? He's just said, there's some people who are supposed to be my brothers and colleagues, co-defenders of the faith. And they are trying to increase my suffering. What does it matter? Friends, when people do me wrong, it's very hard for me to say, what does it matter? <laughs> it matters a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> when people talk about us behind our back or lie about us. And things happen that we didn't want to happen because of what they said. or you, just the, you, things That kind of stuff, it's out there and... We kind of close in on ourselves and we try to self-justify. We try to get retribution. Paul's not interested in retribution. He just wants Jesus to be proclaimed. It's all he cares about. Their motives may be false, but Paul understands the Holy Spirit can work through the gospel regardless of the motives of the minister, which is good news for the church. <laughs> Even if you've got a lousy preacher, um, the Holy Spirit can still work, which is good. Paul wants them to see how deeply real the gospel is and how it gives their life meaning when their life is hard to endure. He goes on in verses 19 through 26 to talk about his imprisonment and what may be on the horizon for him. He says, I rejoice. I will continue to rejoice. I'm locked up. People are saying bad things about me, trying to increase my suffering. I rejoice. I will continue to rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that 
through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, notice how the Spirit of God is at work there, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking, with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. So here's what's going on with Paul. He's in prison. He's waiting for his day in court. He's wanting them to pray for him that he won't lose his courage on the day of that trial, right? Because the emperor or the representative of the emperor is going to say, look, Paul, you're going around preaching this Lord Jesus. We all know that the emperor is the true Lord of the Roman Empire. You need to stop that, and we'll let you off the hook. Just drop a pinch of incense to Caesar. Pledge allegiance to the empire. You can go. And Paul says, I don't want to be put to shame. I want to speak with boldness on the day when they call upon me to betray the gospel. I want to be bold, even if it means getting my head lopped off to proclaim Jesus. Because the gospel gives my life meaning and makes my life worth living, even if it means the end of my life. For to me, verse 21, living is Christ and dying is gain. Right? It's better for Paul, it's better to die for Jesus than to live without the courage in proclaiming the gospel. Man, what a diagnostic for all of us. There are places in the world where following Jesus is dangerous. I'm grateful that Alabama's not one of them yet. <laughs> that may not always be the case. And how will we live when it's not safe and easy to follow Jesus? Will we, like Paul, say, you know, dying for Jesus is gain and it's more important than reputation or life? Or will we find ourselves willing to betray the things we've said we believe for comfort, entertainment, life? If the gospel defines us, nothing takes priority over the gospel. And no matter how hard it gets, Jesus makes life worth living. Verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I don't know which I prefer. I always kind of get a kick out of this passage. Here's, the guy is in, he's on death row pretty much, right? I mean, the Roman Empire is the one who decides, the emperor is the one who decides whether Paul keeps his head or not. And he's going, you know, I don't know what I prefer. I think I'd like to go on living so that I can take care of you, but, you know, life's kind of tough right now. I'm in prison, and if I died, it'd mean I'd be closer in proximity to Jesus. What do I want to do? You know, I, he, for, for him, 
the emperor or the emperor's representatives are inconsequential because Jesus is Lord. Not the governing authorities, not the magistrates. And whatever they do does not overthrow the purposes of God. They can kill Paul. And Paul says, that just means I'm closer to Jesus. Or he can go on living, and that means he gets to keep building up the churches. The empire's decision of where Paul is sent is inconsequential for him. Because Jesus has a gospel plan no matter what the options are. That's what it looks like to have a life defined by the gospel. Society's a mess. The world feels like it's going to hell in a handbasket. Okay. What does God have for us now in the place he's put us? Let's say that culture becomes more antagonistic to the gospel. Does that mean we just kind of run around and pout? Well, I remember the good old days. No. If the gospel defines us, the question is, what does it look like to live for Jesus no matter what the circumstances are? And what, and brothers and sisters, living for Jesus, even in challenging circumstances, still means deep joy. Not pouting. Not, I wish we were in a better situation. The question is, what does it look like to live for the gospel right here, right now, where the Lord Jesus Christ has us? Whether it means prison or antagonism or things are going pretty well right now for us. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. The only thing that matters is the gospel. That is eternally relevant for us. It is eternally applicable for us. It defines who we are in good times and painful times. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Last thing there, notice how Paul is entirely focused on Jesus and his church. There is no sense of, woe is me, I'm locked up. Everything is about what's best for the gospel and what's best for you. That's called other-oriented love, isn't it? Love that's focused on others, not the self. He's going to go in hard on that in the next chapter. And we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> but know that it's coming. Right? And that self-denial, other-oriented love, is at the heart of the gospel-worthy life. And when we get to that place, our circumstances become secondary, imprisonment or whatever, the only thing that matters, loving God and loving neighbors. Paul sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? The gospel makes life worth living, especially when life is hard. And so, our invitation is to reframe all of life 
You may have noticed how at the very end, Paul says, God has graciously granted, verse 29 30, God has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for Him as well. How many of us have ever said, you know, I'm suffering for Jesus, and what a privilege that is. The Greek literally says it's a gift to suffer. And that reframes everything, doesn't it? Paul is inviting the Philippians, he's inviting us to, to take a totally different view on everything that happens. We are quick to thank God for the good times. And we are very slow to thank Him for the challenges that are presented to us. The pain, the loss that we have, the hurt that we have, the adversity that we face. I was thinking about this. You know, what's going on there? What's his point? And then it, it kind of it came clear. Paul wants Christ to be formed in the Philippians. And he wants Christ to be formed in us. I think we want Christ to be formed in us, don't we? You can answer that one. The thing is, Christ is defined by the cross, isn't he? And so it's very hard to have a cross-shaped, Christ-defined life if we never have any cross-shaped suffering. And so Paul wants the Philippians to get to the place, and he wants us to get to the place, where we come to those times in our life that are painful, and instead of saying, what did I do to deserve this, God? We say, Lord, maybe you can make me more like Jesus in this moment who suffered for me. And maybe, just maybe, in my moment of pain and sorrow and loss and grief, maybe you can work through my weaknesses. So that someone else can come into fullness in Christ. That's a gospel-defined life, isn't it? The invitation is to totally reframe all of life. When we see life through the lens of the gospel, and the gospel defines a life worth living, not all the other stuff that's out there. On Google. Life is always worth living. Good times, bad times, when it's easy or when it's hard. And when Jesus gets a church that's characterized by that, that's a church through which he can change the world.